Options activity has altered the investment landscape. Get an edge on this massive flow of funds with Tier 1 Alpha's Market Situation Report brought to you by Hedgeye. A daily newsletter of the latest moves in the options market and a weekly webcast featuring myself, Mike Green of Simplify Asset Management, and Tier 1 Alpha's Craig Peterson and David Pegler. Go to hedgeye.com research for more information. Good Tuesday, everyone. I am David Salem, Managing Director of Capital Allocation here at Hedgeye, and delighted to be diving into a conversation with a gentleman that I very much respect. My good friend Ted Oakley has come up from Texas to chat. Ted, thank you for making the trip. As we were just noting, I'm the guy from New England, and I'm wearing cowboy boots, and you're wearing shoes that more befit New York City. Here we are. Um, for compliance and many other reasons as well, I'm going to label this session as one in which we're going to help people learn how to fish as opposed to handing people fish. So we're not going to mention specific tickers, probably none, but there may be a few that come up from time to time. But Ted has vast experience, deep experience, broad experience in the money management industry, and I really admire the frameworks that he's devised and the way he goes about um, the, the, the profession, as I like to call it, of money management. So. We're going to come back to your background, Ted, which is quite distinctive a little bit later on. But I want to just dive right into the process of teaching people how to fish by asking you at the outset to discuss the distinction that you draw between base capital and investment capital, if you would. So why don't you get us started? You know, David, we started that years ago where we felt like that what happens with investors is they, they don't realize but there should be part of their money that is somewhat untouchable in terms of volatility. And the reason for that is because in those periods where you have extreme volatility on the downside, you've got to, you have to have something emotionally that can keep you settled down. When you have everything in one spot, one area, where you don't really have a lot of bait, what I call base capital, I'm, I'm speaking money that you can get your hands on readily, you know, stuff that's within 24 months probably, treasuries, that sort of thing, high level. But when people don't have that, they don't have the ability to emotionally walk through the tough times. Yeah. So why don't you take us a real quick overview of the business that you've built. It's quite impressive what you've done over the course of your career. Mm -hmm. And you can, in fact, I'll encourage you to go all the way back to your humble beginnings and origins because I think it it informs the way you go about helping your clients steward their own wealth. Well, I grew up poor, very poor, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I had love in the family and that sort of thing, but there certainly wasn't any money, and it was, uh, it was as hard a time as probably anybody ever had. But I was really fortunate along the way. I had a lot of people that really did a lot of great things for me. I, I educated myself. And uh, 40 years ago, I started a company with uh, Mr. Plant and Mr. Herndon, and we still have that company. It's a different company. We mm-hmm. still have that company today. They're great great partners and uh, and then Oxbow was spawned out of that which is a different company a money management company but one of the things you find in growing up poor is and it's interesting this is why I developed base capital investment capital I did it for myself back in the, in the 30s I was so poor that all the money I would get I would even when I was in the business I would be more too conservative I would mm-hmm. hold it close and 
not have, and then I realized, you know, I have to have two sets of money here. I have to have this money over here. This is for myself. Yeah. And then I can, I'll, this will be my risk pool over here, which is a bigger pool, obviously, but it's, it's still, you need the other. That's how I really developed base capital, investment capital was back in the time. But we started uh, 1983 calling on people all over the United States that sold companies. And that was, number one, we love business owners. We love the way they think. We love, particularly first-generation business owners, have been really our, that's our bread and butter, and that's how we developed uh, assets through those people over the years. And they think like us, we think like them, and in most cases, not everyone, but that's how, that, that's how we develop through the years. I want to come back to this uh, important difference between first-generation company builders and second and, and mm-hmm. later generations in just a minute. But before I do that, maybe, Eric, can you put on the Ashvin Chabra framework, the one with the Eiffel Tower? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just want to get Ted to comment on it. I've shown it from this room repeatedly, as you know, Ted, mm-hmm. and I gave you a, a forewarning of this. So Ashvin, who's running the money for Jim and Marilyn Simons now, their family office, has a tripart dichotomy, uh, sorry, a tripart framework. Right. It's not a dichotomy, but um, it, which is on the screen. And, and, and you have a sort of a two-part framework, and I'd just be interested in your briefly comparing and contrasting the two. Are they more similar or different? Is this what you're trying to get at in encouraging your clients to think about base versus investment capital? Well, it is, and I, you could take the investment side of our capital, and it could be a two-part or three-part because we do different things. Yeah. But uh, and so we don't break it down like that. But just from terms of where we are now, I, one of the things I've found out, I, I one of the books I wrote, uh, the psychology of staying rich. I interviewed quite a few really wealthy people, five hundred million to over a billion. Yeah. And one of the things I found about them is they had base capital. And they and they knew when to use it, and and that's interesting to me. So, people with smaller amounts of money could remember that. Yeah. So talk about that a little bit more because you know, for most of my career, I think until quite recently, and I've talked about this at, and written about it at some length. You know, you have the the adage, "cash is trash," right? Yeah. And I know from your writings and from separate conversations with you that the base capital that you just alluded to. A, constitutes a relatively large fraction of those uber-wealthy people's investable wealth. Mm-hmm. And B, if I'm not mistaken, and I want you to comment on it, it's often held in cash, which is not at all what you see with longer-term institutional endowment and foundation asset mixes. Anyhow, discuss. <laughs> well, everyone I talked to of those kinds of people, number one, they all had real estate, too. It just seems like it was a... Not every single one of them, but most of them had a fairly decent piece of real estate, 30 35%. And then on the cash part, they all had the same idea. I don't, I don't need to hit the first ball that comes at me. I can wait. I have enough money to where I can wait. And they all said the same thing, that, you know, we know that every decade we're going to have one or two chances to really make a lot of money mm-hmm. because we will have liquidity and nobody else will. And that was basically their format for thinking that way. And if you think about it, it, it works out that way for them. They have liquidity, and that's where they really get ahead of everybody else yeah. you know, through that. Um, do you want to try to contrast that with what you've typically encountered when you've dealt with investment committees acting as such? Well, I, I have to say I don't do real well with investment committees in this respect. <laughs> I think I mentioned this to you, but if they... 
if it's an annual change of committee members, okay, that means we have to educate the new ones. And typically, not always, I'm not saying this is a total case, but many, many times you have a new person coming on that wants to let you know on this investment side that they know what they're doing and that you may not be going about it the correct way of those sort of things. And so I try to get, when I've, we've done that, though, I've tried to get those people to think a little differently than the normal investment committee. Mm-hmm. I've actually tried to get them to think, don't try to be sort of a limbing approach here. Try to, try to think about what could go wrong, okay? And what do you really need? You know, if you ask them, in most cases, about inflation, net inflation returns after inflation, mm-hmm. very few of those people could answer that question for me. Mm-hmm. They didn't know, didn't really know the number. And so they were used to people making a presentation, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do. I really try to get them always to think about what they're doing. Can you really think about it? Yeah. It's interesting that you say that, Eric. I think there's a slide in the in the deck that I gave you for today. It may be, in fact, the, the very next one, which is called Getting Structured for Success. Yeah, it's a lot of crowded words here, Ted, but as, as you know, it's uh, it, it opens with my what I call my real return swap question, where I will deal with asset owners, whether it's an investment committee, right. a family office, a, a wealthy individual, and, and ask them, okay, if you could swap all of your investable wealth for a, a risk-free contract that would guarantee a real return, a return net of inflation, what would be the threshold level at which you'd say, okay, I'm willing to forego anything better than that in order to be assured of getting at least that return? On a, presumably, this is the hypothetical question that I pose. It's on screen at present o- over an indefinite time horizon. Um, I know that you pose something similar, that uh-huh. kind of a question to your clients, both actual mm-hmm. and potential. What are the range of answers that you've gotten, and what do you deduce from the answers that you've received? Right. Well, first of all, I'm trying to get them to understand that the idea of investing over, over the years is to maintain buying power. That, that's the idea, is to have as much money 20 years from now as you do now, plus maybe make more than that. And so one of the things I ask them is that very question, look, if I could just guarantee you or get a return over inflation, what would you take? Most of them don't have a clue on really what to do, what to say. I mean, I've had people tell me, oh, well, let's shoot for 12%. And I'm like, Net of inflation. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, 12%. So they clearly have no understanding <laughs> no idea. of capital market No idea. History. And so yeah. I try yeah. to explain to them, I said, just look, you know, look at, look at history back to 1900. Let's say that, uh, you know, the new book, Socks for the Long Run, he said that that's maybe an 8.1 or 8.2 nominal 3.7 3.6 inflation over mm-hmm. time so where does that leave you you know and so you have to start with them to say okay you know if, if let's say we're going to go more on the what do you want on the on the base side fixed income side you know you're down to maybe one or two maybe at the most mm-hmm. and then the other side you have to sort of get them to understand if you just ask them the raw question though david most of them have no idea mm-hmm if you just ask the raw question and don't give them any any input. Yeah. They don't know. What I'm going to propose a very unfair question. Mm-hmm. Like I know your wife has a very senior post at the University of Texas. If you had like unilateral control over their large endowment and you were posed that question on behalf of the university, mm-hmm. what real return 
would you accept on behalf of the university to lock away its endowment forever in exchange for that real return? Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Start generating alpha with our suite of Sector Pro investing research products. Dive deep into retail, industrials, technology, and everything in between with exclusive access to the sharpest analysts and actual ideas on Wall Street. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Okay, one of the things about them that's different from most is they have a lot of oil and gas coming in no matter what. True. So it just piles back in. But if if I were sitting there, okay, in sorts, I couldn't be because I didn't go to UT. But, uh, <laughs> but I what if I were sitting there, you, you have to go to UT or A&M. And so if, if you didn't, and, but what happens is uh, if it were me and I were sitting there and I said, look, if you could give me, okay, if if you could give if you give me a five percent run over inflation, yeah. I'll hand it over to you. We're done for good. Yeah, that's five. me. Yeah. That's what I would say. But yeah, anything lower, <laughs> you wouldn't settle. Well, for? no, I might yeah. for. I'm just I'm using yeah. I'm, I'm using the best yeah. case scenario now. Yeah. If you said uh, guarantee, yeah, yeah, okay, it, it that, that's that my I'd probably I, you know, I, yeah. I would probably in that case say, you know, give me give me three three and a half. Yeah, I can go with that. So in the process of answering my next question, I want you to give us a little more color on the shape of your business and yeah. specifically among other variables you can discuss. The split as between taxable and tax exempt wealth. Right. The question I'm leading to builds on the question I just posed about UT, which would be that's tax exempt capital they're endowed. Mm. What in the what about in the case of a of a high income taxable family or individual? Right. What real return swap would you accept there? And again, I encourage you to describe your business in somewhat greater detail, the size of the AUM and the split as between taxable and tax exempt. Because I presume, Ted, that you're actually, you and your team are managing the taxable wealth in a manner that necessarily differs from the way you're deploying tax exempt wealth. Yeah. You do. Uh, one, of, one of the things about the taxable wealth is we obviously have a tax aspect we have to take into consideration on the thing. And one of the things we do that's probably a little different from most people is that we try to own our companies for more than five years. You know, if you look at our average, we have holdings that we've had for 15 years. Mm -hmm. But that's when we're dealing with money that needs to stay with, one of the things I found out a lot of people when they, when they invest, they turn too quickly. So they end up, you know, they end up giving it away, and a good company, you know, they may get up on it 25% and sell it, mm -hmm. and look up four or five years later, and they left so much money on the table, that sort of thing. But for us, what we do in in those situations is 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 we try to think about, okay, well, first of all, if they're out of state, okay, not Texas doesn't have a, a, an income tax, but we hold only treasuries for the no state tax mm -hmm. situation. Amazing how many of those people don't know that. Mm -hmm. They'll have money at the bank, see, yep. you know. Yep. And so we make sure they understand that to start with on, on the liquid portion of it. And then we have, a, we're pretty good bond buyers for the portion that we do have in fixed income, we, we, we're good at that. And we don't try to, what we're trying to do there is it's just an offset for the other side of the investment. But we only have really three strategies and the people like that. But we have a really conservative fixed income and uh, we have a stock 
side on one side, and in the middle we have something we had we developed in '92 called a high income strategy. It's mm -hmm. there's no bonds. It's these are things that pay high cash flows, and um, most of our investors, including the high net worth, they they want the, they want the cash flow without having to be totally in the stock market. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the volatility level of that middle account, it's probably only half what the stock market is. Sometimes, uh, you know, it doesn't work as well. I mean, people will get will you get a high return in the stocks, and you don't get as much on the on the middle side. But what what we do in there is our process is trying to hold things long enough to where we're obviously in the low bracket. Or yeah. we'll own things, like if you look at a high income account, we own a number of MLPs that are paid on a K-1, much like real estate, that kind of thing. Um, but we, that's, that's the way we approach it. I know it sounds relatively simple, but they like it that way. So we, that's sort of the way that we run the three strategies. Yeah, now you're, I know, quite familiar with what we do here in our yeah. research and the way we look at the world at Hedgeye. And I say we, mm -hmm. all due credit to the p many people sitting behind us right now, because I'm a relative newcomer to the whole exercise here. But you know that we tend to look at gold as a currency. And you, I know, have a heavy emphasis on the cash generative properties of anything you put into your client portfolios. Mm -hmm. Does gold have any role to play? I presume that it doesn't have a role to play in the first conservative income strategy because it doesn't generate a cash yeah. flow. But oddly talk enough, to us it, about gold. Yeah, oddly enough, it really does. In the, the conservative income strategy, the high income, we own 4% gold both. Okay, oh. We don't own gold in stock accounts. Yep. However, we do own a couple of, of royalty miners. Not, not the gold itself, because mm -hmm. we, we want the cash flow on the upside, but we didn't want the capital expenditure. So, but we own four percent in in both of those, and we own it because we feel like there's periods, and we think we're coming into one, where gold will come into its own again. You know, I don't have this with me, but I've done a pretty good study, and we're I've really worked on this this year about showing these 15-year periods where finance does well and commodities do well. Yeah. Well, we're, we're coming up on one. Now, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm just saying I can block it out to you going back to you know, 19, the 1930s mm -hmm. and show those 15-year breaks. And we haven't had one in a while. So if we get that, gold should do well. But I look at it as I'm looking around the, in the world right now. And if you look at the world right now, all these countries buying gold. They're they're buying gold, and, and I know it's going to be very hard for them to try to get some sort of currency against the dollar. I understand that, mm -hmm. but I think one of their objectives is I want to own something, something else besides the dollar. So if we think about your overall AUM, what fraction of it, very roughly, is invested in the shares of companies domiciled outside the United States right now? Very low, two percent, because in, mo a lot of the companies we own are. 50% world anyway. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think people have to look at that. I mean, you can say, now, we're looking at, we have been looking at a few Japanese stocks, but if you look at the companies, a lot of the companies we own, though, so much of their business is worldwide. They just happen to be domiciled here, but, and they're U.S. companies. But, you know, that wasn't the case 40 years ago. Yeah. You were just here or there. Yeah. And now it's different. Yeah. You know, they're integrated all over. So, um, I'm not saying we wouldn't do it or anything like that. It's just that things have been so poor overseas, we haven't had an interest in it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about investment policy statements. I want to do a, have a logical, in my own mind, maybe mm -hmm. it's a warped mind, but a logical segue from what you just mentioned. 
um, and ask the question, um, to what extent are you emphasizing the crafting of investment policy statements and trying to codify what your clients want and what you think you can deliver? And more specifically, Ted, to what extent are the clients expressing preferences, if not strict limitations or exclusions, as you discuss these policies with them? I mean specifically with respect to China in particular. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, we, when we talk to somebody about an IPS, you know, what, what happens is they've usually seen a, just a, a black box piece that's been shown to them. They're all, you know, all the, sort of the same, like, and they, the, maybe the people before us were there or something like that. You mean sort of boilerplate? Yeah, just boilerplate. IPS, and so yeah. what, they, what, what we try to get them to understand is it is all right. You need to have this in there. I'm not saying you're going to do it tomorrow, but it is all right to not be that exposed to something or potentially be zero exposed mm -hmm. to something. And you need to have that capacity in there. And you also need to have the capacity. Me uh, meaning you don't have a non-zero minimum, as I like to put right, it. You right, can say right. it's you can okay say to go to zero you can on go a to given zero. exposure. And uh, you can go, uh, and you know, if you want to own liquidity, so many of the ones we see and that's why we, I think we, we don't do as many public uh, accounts, and that's the reason why, because it's a lot of changes going, a lot of things. But uh, I always recommend to them, you know, you, and I look, I'm on the boards of a few of them, and they don't have any, they don't listen to me, but they don't have any cash. <laughs> why not? They don't have any cash. They're like, like 1%, 2%, yep. um, and I'm like, okay, wait a minute. You have 1% or 2% cash, and you have 35% in alternatives, and you don't even know what they are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you try to educate if you can, but it, it, I, I think to a certain degree, peer pressure affects these people. Yeah. And they know, you know, they sit on maybe multiple boards or know, know somebody else. So what we try to do, there's some policy statements, right? Say, look, we're, we're gonna take your policy statement that you already have, and we're gonna, we're gonna recommend to you to make some changes here, yeah. because you're, uh, you're 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 in the wrong you're in the wrong place here. So again, I'm going to try to draw a connection that you may deem inartful when you hear me try to draw it. Uh -huh. But I want to draw a connection between what you just said and your mm -hmm. illusion at the beginning of our conversation mm -hmm. today about first generation wealth, because I know you've thought and written a lot, very eloquently in my uh -huh. view, about both the the benefits and the burdens of second and and lower generation, lower not in a pejorative sense, but second, third, and, and uh -huh. subsequent generation wealth. The mindset, the, 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 the segue will be, do you find that when you talk about, for example, the importance of having substantial cash reserves, of not keeping them at a de minimis level, um, of knowing what you own and owning what you know, do you get a different reaction and response from first generation company builders and founders versus second and third? And in answering that question, I, I would love to have you, whatever length you want, we've got plenty of time, expand on your views of the benefits and the burdens of the second and subsequent generation. Hi, Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Agile. Join our entire research analyst team live before the market opens for deep dive investing analysis, our favorite stock ideas, and our risk manager-in-chief, Keith McCullough's macro overlay. Our team of 40-plus equity analysts discuss key market developments, trends, and our high-conviction, long-and-short investing ideas. You will not get this granular level of insight anywhere else. 
a video replay, audio version, and analyst summary notes from the call are available shortly after each live show to ensure you don't miss anything. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe and tune in live to the call weekdays at 7.45 a.m. Eastern. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Well, that's interesting you say that because there is a complete breakdown between the two. The, the first generation who probably had to scrape, probably went in debt, probably had nothing, barely made, had to make payroll, everything. They understand the ability to hold cash and to be more conservative. They're fine with it. I, we rarely have one that's not fine with it. Mm-hmm. We, we, we do. What happens with second generation, unfortunately, is they, they didn't make the money. And, you know, I just finished an interesting book called The Missing Billionaires. And it goes back to say, if you had $5 million in 1900, it would have spawned. If you just got a normal return, you didn't, you didn't need to beat the market. You would have 16 billionaires out of that five, five million today. Mm-hmm. And they went back to say, in 1982, Ford's, for, Ford's 400. Mm-hmm. There's hardly any of them made a billion off yeah. of that. And so what I'm trying to say is when you get to those seconds, and here's my problem with it, is that it's hard to get second generation to uh, listen well because I feel for them, I, I do, because most second generation wealth, okay, is trying to, or third, is trying to be relevant. They're trying, and they're good people, but they're trying to be relevant relative to the first generation, mm-hmm. who, let's face it, was the matriarch, patriarch of the whole machine. And so that's a very hard position to be put into, but they're in that position. And it's interesting, I have a, a I have a new book next year coming out on that. I, I know it'll be a little bit controversial because some of the second and third generation won't like it, but the point I was trying to make to them is this. It would be very helpful for you in the investing side to listen and learn to stand on your, on your own two feet. and not, You don't need to try to show anybody else what you are. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm getting into some, some family things here, but that's mm-hmm. what happens. I see that. I see it. And, and, uh, I, and, and some, it's not always that way. I and mean, we have some really great second and third generation investors, I will just tell you. But many, many times they want to just be going and going, get that money in, get the money in. Don't, you know, let's, tr- let's try these other things. Let's try all these alternatives. And many times they don't really know. But, and not all first generation, but first generation people have usually lost money already mm-hmm. in the business or something. So they're, they're reticent to just do anything, you know. And so they know they're okay now. They spent all that time building a business. And so they think, you know what, I'm not going to ruin that the rest of my life. But um, it's rare. It's, for us, even in our own business, it's rare for us to get those concepts over to this, our second and third generation. I will tell you, David, they spend the money. Yeah. They just spend it, spend it, spend it. And it, 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 it's hard to get that across. Yeah. Didn't you write a book, was it 20 million and gone? Or what, what? I wrote a book called <laughs> 20 million and broke, and it's a new version of it actually. Yeah. It's just been finished. I finished it this month. It'll be out in February called 30 million broke. That was 15 years ago. So <laughs> it's inflation. inflation. It was 30 million, but plus I had some more yeah. stories. Yeah. I had some more stories of people that- Any you uh, want to share with us right now that are in the, in the new book, in the forthcoming Well, book? Uh, yeah, I've had 
I've in since that time, okay, I've had two two hundred and fifty million people that went to zero, not because of us. Uh, because because they, they, they went outside and did all the things we tell them not to do. Mm-hmm. I've had two 500 million people lose 80% of it, you know, and so, and numerous though, numerous. Yeah. 30, but you're not 40, alluding to profligate spending, and maybe that was part oh, of Oh, no, that, that, but, no but they went into business. Failed no. investment. <clears throat> they did all the things you wouldn't want to do. Poor I capital mean, allocation. They would, yeah. <clears throat> they would uh, own too many homes, buy too many jets, yeah. invest in six businesses they had to feed all the time, mm-hmm. uh, that sort of thing, and and not thinking about the ramifications of it all. It's interesting to me, most people don't realize, they don't take serious enough how much it takes to get after-tax money at that level. It's hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And you can't do it a second time, usually. Yeah, approaching impossible, really. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, can you put the first slide up on the screen? I want to ask Ted to talk a bit about a somewhat sensitive topic, which I think you're, you're re- familiar enough with what I've been able to share with the audience here at Hedgeye to know that with respect to almost any aspect of my professional life, I have a four-part framework where I start with disqualifying attributes and then unfavorable, favorable, mm-hmm. and then highly attractive or essential. And I want to, we're putting this on the screen only because I want to show that framework and ask you to describe. I know you're rather discriminating about the families and individuals that you're willing to manage money for. What are the disqualifying or unattractive attributes that you have in mind when you're talking to a potential client and you ultimately decide to, no, I don't want to work with them? Well, the number one is they, they have, their expectations are not realistic. Their expectations are, uh, I want to beat the S&P every year. I don't, I don't care how you do it. That's what we're going to do here. And I'm like, well, we can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Can anybody do so, it? So <laughs> uh, we'll start off with that for sure. And then secondly. Does that end the conversation? Yeah, <laughs> no, pretty close. I mean, I, I'll yeah. go through it with them. But, and then the, and another thing that they, they, they want to do, for example, is I want to be involved in the decisions. Yeah. And we're like, no, you can't. We won't do that, okay? Either, because we know it's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. And so we that so it's all fully discretionary. That cuts it. Yeah, I've had people tell me this before, as crazy as it sounds, but they'll say, I don't want to. I I don't like to take losses. So I don't want you to take losses. And I always ask them a question and say, or the statement to them, if you're doing business with somebody. They won't take a loss, and you need to fire them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> but people they think that though, huh. especially second generation, by the way. So and so I've never I, heard that actually. No, no. They, yeah. I've had second generation yeah. tell me, you know, uh, I, I we didn't get ever taken by taking losses. We got everybody taking. So you, I don't want you taking losses. I yeah. Said, yeah. Well, I'm like, well, you you just put me in a position. You, know, you might as well think I'm God, because that's never going to happen. And so those are things. And then if we get in a situation where I can tell there's tremendous conflict on expectations between the two spouses, mm-hmm. one's really conservative, one's really aggressive, we won't take it. Yeah. It, it, and you, you can see they can have a very happy marriage. They just happen to differ yeah. on that and one it just, dimension. It's just yeah. somebody is always going to be unhappy. Yeah. And guess who they blame? 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what's going to happen because they're going to say, well, you know, they're, they're yeah. real risky. I told you not to do that. So it, this takes me to, Eric, if you could go to um, the third slide with the real return swap question on it, because there's a second question on that slide, mm. which you may recall seeing, Ted. It's the drawdown question. Yeah. Right. And it's, you know, it's, it's in every RIA's questionnaire of a potential client, right? How large a drawdown are you willing to tolerate? I wonder what you think of the question, and I wonder what, more importantly, what you think of the answers and how you relate them, if you indeed get the chance to do so, to the real return swap question. Because I've always regarded them as kind of logically opposite sides of the same coin. And when yeah. you get wildly, illogically inconsistent answers to these two questions, that's when I say to a potential client in my former life, no thanks. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to work with you. Exactly. <laughs> well, uh, I have to say that the way we do things, we're not going to take any extraordinary drawdowns. I, when I, when I, and I, I would say in the, on the whole, that would be limited to 15% at the most. Mm. On the whole, okay, on the whole. We're not, you'll never see us in that position where, uh, like in 2003, the market was down 53 or 54% or something. We're never going to be in that. Our, our people can't take it, for one, okay? So we're never, and usually it's not that much. But I'm just saying the way we're structured is not going to happen like yeah. that. But what I find with people is interesting is they don't know themselves, David. If you say, I've been saying this before, but if you say, if they say, okay, I'm really, I'm really conservative, and so you, you go through some things with them, you realize that they, and I know you've heard this before because you've been around, you've run too much money. But it's one of the, I have this saying, they want 10% with no risk. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we're like, luck, well, we luck. can't. Yeah, yeah. We can. but they, you, they get around to that in some way. And then, yeah. <clears throat> then you'll have somebody say, I'm really aggressive. But if you start asking the right questions and use absolute dollars, <clears throat> they've got $100 million. Yeah, don't put the question in percentage <clears throat> terms. But you've dollars. got $100 million, what if you... Came so back two years from now and had fifty. Yeah, and fifty. Yeah, or sixty. Yeah. How you? How, how are you on that? Well, I, I don't want that. No. Well, I'm. Then I pull out you know, some historicals and say, mm-hmm. well, he, you would have done that here, if you fully in the market, yeah. and you would have done it here, <clears throat> and you would have done it here. Yeah. N- not to dwell on it too much, but you mentioned it. <clears throat> you know, in a conversation mm-hmm. with a potential client. I assume it was a potential mm-hmm. client. They said, you know, I want to keep up with the S&P 500 every year. That's yeah. what you said. And we both kind of rightly kind of scoffed at that and said, that's not a client we want to work with. Right? But it, th- that begs the question, uh, an important question to me these days, which is, is the S&P 500 you know, a, a suitable benchmark for any part of a large family fortune that the family itself hopes will endure for multiple generations to come? Well, I know I'll get a lot of flack on this because they're going to be able to say, well, if you went back, you know, in the last 15 years with the S&P, now I would say this to them. Between January 1 of 2000, 2012, I think it made 1%. Yeah. I may be wrong. Yep. Um, but in this last period, this last 12 or 13 years, they've been able to say, yeah, you just got to buy the S&P and forget about it. Mm-hmm. My contention is that we're probably going into a period like 1966 to 1983 where, yeah, you can own the Dow and you can own the S&P, but guess what? At the end of the period, you didn't make any money. And I keep saying to these people in our business, you know what's going to happen? 
somewhere along in there, seven or eight years into that, they're going to say, oh, it seems to me that you're making about as much money as I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and see, yeah. then you know, the pressures come in the it industry. Yeah. And so I think yeah. we could be going on that. If we are, mm-hmm. we have a whole set of people that are totally locked into indexing, and it's going to really throw them. Yeah, and I can't remember whether it was this morning or over dinner. I had the great pleasure of your company for dinner last night along with Kevin Peel. But you mentioned this sort of generational divide. You were dividing the kind of universe of actors and doers into at least two generations. But I may have, may misrecalling. Go ahead and speak no, to that. No, that's right. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, what was had, the framework that you... Well, the framework yeah. was, I've said this all along, and I ran the numbers on this uh, a year yeah. or so ago, that since 2009, about something like 42% of the people in the business um, have been only in that period. They've just been around since 2009. Right. So... Post-GFC. Yeah, post-GFC. Yeah. Uh, then you've not another set of people that have been around 30 years, but they've only seen interest rates going down. Yeah. See? Even though they've been around a long time. Yeah. X the last uh, 15 months. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, I'm old enough to say I've Two done years. both. <laughs> I've gone <laughs> Well, you don't look it. You look and great. so what happens is these yeah. people, the, the, especially this, the, the group I've mentioned since GFC, Yeah. Um, I think they're going to, have and it's interesting. I interview people that are with other firms, or we're looking, maybe looking at somebody like that. And it's interesting. I, I say this, but many times they can't really distinguish the difference between a balance sheet and income statement like we would do. And but they're all about indexing. Just buy these fifteen indexes, and we're going to be good to go. Mm-hmm. And you put a certain amount in each one. Well, that was great. It did work during the period. I'm not saying it didn't work, okay? Yeah. Yeah. But if you go into something different, and I always worry about, this is what I worry about for myself. Can I recognize the change? Can I recognize? Can I? Is it going to be changing, and I'm stubborn and not make an adjustment? Or is it changing in front of my eyes and, and, I, and I change too early? You know how that is, too. Yeah. And so one of the things I like about your new uh, program, which, I th- by the way, I think is excellent, and I bought a lot of research, um, is, is the way it's done really helps with those changes. It's, it, that's really good. Thank you. I appreciate that. Those are um, very kind words. I, I'm going to actually, on that theme, uh, I'm holding in my hand a client letter that you wrote, which I have the privilege of having in my files. I'm just going to read from it quickly and then have you comment on it. People in today's market are buying what is going up with no regard for value. Everything that was taught or learned by most of us money managers about value is now old school. As we go forward, the risks seem obvious to us, but as yet, few seem to notice. A change in investment themes is probably starting, but has yet to fully emerge. Hopefully, we can get through this roller coaster time in good fashion. You recall writing those words? I wrote that in uh, January of 2000, yeah. And, um, <laughs> Which I'm reading, of course, because yeah. it might aptly have been written today. Well, uh, you know, fortunately for us, for the whole three-year period, we were only down a little less than 10%. Yeah. So we didn't have far to make up. Uh, this was 2000, 2001, 2002. Right. Yeah. There was a tough period. And, and, and that period yeah. where I wrote that was much very similar to today yeah. um, in the Magnificent Seven. Yeah. Like, they'll never 
you know, they'll never go down. Yeah. And uh, in the front of that piece, I put 15 companies in there. And they got slaughtered. In January, your client letter. January 2000, in January I, wrote, I wrote out the companies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they got slaughtered over the mm -hmm. next 10 years. When, yeah. when I say that, I mean 60, 70, 80, 90% declines. Yeah. This was Intel, Cisco, Microsoft. Yeah. Even yeah. Microsoft. Yeah. Clobbered. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a darling today, and we own some of it. Yeah. But it, it's had a two, two lives. Yeah. Big <laughs> negative total return yeah. for the following decades. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so what I found was what's analogous is that people today are very, very similar. They, they assume that what they're buying in that will, mm -hmm. will be fine. Yeah. And yet they never really look at what's under the hood. Yeah. You've given me another great segue. I already I forewarned you this morning that mm -hmm. I wanted to borrow from Tyler Cowen, who does one, I think, one right. of the, the better podcasts that's available. I think he's superb. It, one of the reasons, by the way, is he's able to pose questions to his guests that are far more concise than the ones I'm posing to you today, <laughs> okay. which I really admire. So I'll try to, to, to hew to that standard for the remaining 20 minutes that we have. But he has a little segment in many of his episodes where he does an over and underrated. He just mouths a couple words and then asks his guest, okay, is that over and underrated and why? So I'd ask you to do it. The segue is the first one I want to give you is, is the efficient markets hypothesis, EMH. Overrated, underrated, and why? And then I might insert my own uh, evaluation. Yeah. Well, it's overrated, in my opinion, because it's academic. And what I found about academics, and not, not, no, nothing against academics, okay? Your wife works with My wife, <laughs> wife is at the University of Texas, so I have to be careful because yeah, they're great people. But what you, teach and what you teach and what you put in practice are two different things. Yeah. And um, it, it's interesting. Most of the really great investors around that I've noticed are not big fans of EMH. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just say as a, a hopefully entertaining and amusing sidebar, when you walked into the building today, as you know, I was tied up in a Zoom talking to some incredibly sharp folks from your home state of Texas. I uh -huh. probably shouldn't name who they were. But we talked a lot about options and volatility. Right. And, and I said, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember I had the great fortune of spending, um, having an extended conversation with Fisher Black before he died. Um, and I remember distinctly asking him, you know, so what, what do I, sh starting my career, I was still a young man uh, with very little experience. What do I do with your model, the famous Black-Scholes model? And he looked at me directly in the eye and said, well, David, it's not intended to be used in the real world because of all the assumptions that it's based on, which are kind of not real, realistic, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was incredibly um, gentlemanly well, I, of him. I, I always wanted to meet him. His, yeah. his, he had passed away, but his wife yeah. was next door to us in Wyoming, oh, okay. and a uh, really nice lady. Yeah. Uh, that I've met her a few times, but I never got a chance to meet he him, but I would have thought that. Yeah, but anyhow, if I can say so, just between you and me, yeah. the punchline is a couple of years later, I was at the wedding of, of my assistant from work, and that family was kind enough to put me at the table next to Myron Scholes, who was a family oh, friend wow, of Wow, okay. And I, essentially, I posed the same question. What do I do with the model? And he looked at me and said, well, will you do exactly as the textbooks say. It works perfectly. <laughs> oh, wow, interesting. And I thought, it's such an interesting reflection on their two characters. Yeah. Right? This is before Myron and others blew up with long-term capital oh, yeah. management. Maybe in hindsight you can see that there was a kind of stubbornness that the model will always work as design. Which... Okay, next on my list, Jay Powell. Underrated, overrated, and why? Well, he's completely overrated, much like all of them have been 
since Greenspan, really. I think I think that these these Federal Reserve presidents that think chairman that think they can actually control the economy bother me because that's not what they were set up to do. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not what their calling was. And uh, when I look at somebody like that, that really goes, he, I just don't have respect for him running his business the way he should. Do you blame Powell and his predecessors and maybe successors more than you blame Congress itself for reshaping them? I mean, the Humphrey Hawkins Act said right. here you're, you have a tripart mandate, right? Well, it's interesting you say that because yeah. I do blame the Congress because yeah. if they had taken fiscal responsibility all along since Greenspan, I think what they did is they punted to the Federal Reserve and said, uh, and, it's, and it, it's not something they did intentionally, but it worked okay in the beginning, so they just kept on doing it. Mm -hmm. Hey, it's up to you. If you, you know, the markets are falling and this is happening, so you need to take care of it. Mm -hmm. um, and oh no, they've they're worse. <laughs> so yeah, they, they go hand in hand. But I, I think he's got a tough job. I wouldn't want it, but. I do think he's overrated because people, they, they sit on every word he says and it's like, we, we, we just think that that's, that's not the way it should be. Yeah. Next on my list, Stan Druckenmiller. That's a logical segue. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> I have tremendous respect for Mr. Druckenmiller. I, I don't know him, but I know his track record, which is envious. I would love to have it. Yeah. You know, there's people that I look at and say, I, I wish I could be like that. And he's one of them. Uh, really smart man. I've always enjoyed listening to him. Is there anything in particular in his approach or his public utterances that you find particularly persuasive, compelling, or appealing? Well, you know, recently he's talked a lot about this in the last six or nine months about government debt, yeah. about how it just can't work. I have to believe that. I mean, I think he's correct on that, and I just think more people should listen to him. If there's one, one thing I would love to do is I would love to when he's making changes in his portfolio, I'd love to know what, what he's doing. <laughs> in advance. Yeah, in advance. <laughs> you know? sure. Or just at the Good same time. I'd just love to know, hey, I'm thinking like this, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, from what he's told publicly, sometimes he himself doesn't know in yeah. advance what, Smart the, guy, though. what the move's going to be. He sure is. Um, uh, by the way, I've tried to interview him before, and, and I got shut out, but yeah, I'd yeah. love to have interviewed yeah. him. Um, Sequoia Capital. Yeah. Underrated, overrated, why? Oh, I think overrated. You should explain to our audience who they are, by the yeah. way. You and I well, the big venture are. capital company, yeah. I guess, if not the biggest, one of the biggest. And, and all the startups, you know, and a lot of the things that you see trading today, they, they, had, an, they had some input into. Um, I think what people don't understand about venture capital is you never hear about the things that don't work. Like a lot of our clientele will do something, and I ask them, what are you doing? I'm going to venture capital. And I'll come back a few years later and I'll say, well, what happened? And I said, well, you know, they had five deals, you know, four didn't work, one's working okay, um, but they're never going to get the money out, you know. Mm -hmm. And the thing about it, if you look at Sequoia, I think they got so big they thought, you know, you get this, you get this idea in your head that, that everything you do is going to work. So they went into FTX and all that. Crazy, 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 crazy. Mm -hmm. um, overrated. <laughs> Yeah, my own view of that is it's, the generalization is whenever you get a truly extraordinary outcome, mm -hmm. which you did in the case of Sequoia's relationship with FTX, yeah. it happened to be an extraordinarily ugly outcome. Yeah. It's always the confluence in, of a number of extraordinary factors, not just one. 
So you could say, well, failed due diligence, failed governance. It was all of those things. But to me, Ted, the ultimate underlying root cause mm -hmm. of that debacle was what I call excessive asset aggregation, meaning they just had, because they had such a sterling track record, they aggregated so much capital that when SBF walked into the room and said, yes, I'm running a crypto exchange, but it has the potential to be the Amazon of finance. Yeah. They said it was right in the article that was on their website until they yanked it down, their hagiographic hey, profile of Sam Bankman-Fried. Said the reason we're writing out this massive check is because he's articulating a vision for a TAM, total addressable market, that it can absorb a very large amount of capital from us, which is, of course, their principal challenge because they had aggregated so much capital. What people fail to do is then go back, and this sounds a little bit impolite to my friends in the endowment and foundation community, as you probably know, 100% of Sequoia's client base, leaving aside its own principles and Silicon Valley execs from whom mm -hmm. they took some taxable wealth, but all of it was endowment and foundation capital. And so you go back, you know, where do you stop drawing the blame? Do you go back to the MITs, the Harvards, the Stanfords of the world and say, well, you failed in your due diligence to ask Sequoia if it was conducting adequate due diligence on FTX. Yeah. I don't know how far back you want to go. Uh, yeah. Well, in that case, I think, I think anytime you have a new fad investment, you need to be really asking a lot of questions. Yeah. Anytime it's a new fad. Yeah. Well, in this context, you mean crypto, because the VC industry itself is Not, not VC, but I'm talking about the old. crypto yeah. side of the business. Yeah. If you go to CoinMarketCap, is a website. There's 8,800 coins on yeah. there. Okay. Yeah. I just checked it yesterday. I was curious. I hadn't done it in about five or six months. And all the way down, to, I think number 200 is still a is still a, like a billion. Yeah. In other words, it tells you. And if you go look at how much, if you look at the money amount of money that's been lost in that group, mm -hmm. that itself would make you think, oh, we, we need to do a little more work on this mm -hmm. before we let them go. Yeah. And I don't think they did. Yeah. No pretense that there's this logical segue to the next bullet on my um, underrated, overrated list. Um, the long-term return potential of ExxonMobil and other oil and gas majors. Mm. Overrated, underrated, and why? Hi, I'm Keith McCullough, and I wanted to introduce you to my favorite product at Hedgeye, the Macro Show. Why is it my favorite product? Well, it's my show. I do that every morning. If you want to get ready for the market day, you want to contextualize all the data, you want to make good decisions, then this is what you should be watching. It's a repeatable process that you can deliberately study, measuring and mapping time series to time series of data. So it's not going headline to headline and getting whipped around. It's actually being so much more dispassionate about it and making good decisions that are data-driven. So we'd love to have you on our team. Come join us. Tune in weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern and on demand anytime. Go to hedgeye.com slash research to subscribe. I think it's underrated in this respect. I think people uh, have misjudged the, the, the move from fossil fuels to green. I think they think that, oh, we'll just do electric and they don't realize all there's a lot of ramifications to that number one there's too many countries in the world that they don't even have electricity they don't have that much electricity number one mm -hmm. but i think um, they have a lot of vehicles but a lot of vehicles but mostly yeah. Present. yeah and so yeah. i think people don't realize that the oil and gas business is probably going to be better than they think over the next 10 years mm -hmm. is it a declining asset yeah 
in the long, long run. But over the next decade, you know, one of the things that I think they've done in certain cases is they've spent money on things that probably didn't need to be. But now look at what they've done. Chevron, you know, look, look at the two, Chevron and Exxon both made major purchases. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because they know they need that. They, they need the fossil fuel, yeah. oil and gas. And so I, I, I think it's underrated what they can do the next 10 years. Warren Buffett, underrated or overrated? Oh, I think underrated because people don't really under, they don't really take enough of his, but, but when I, 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 for me, I think he, I love what he does, okay? When I say underrated, what I mean is he's so much better than, than what people think, I yeah. think, when, when I use that term. They just don't mm -hmm. understand how good he is. Um, I love the way he runs his companies. Go look at what he pays his board members. They have to own a lot of stock on their own. He doesn't give it to them. Mm -hmm. No stock options. They get paid nothing, 7000 a year or something. Uh, he takes no money. I love the way he buys companies. You've got all these, all these other companies that buy companies, private equity, whatever. They, have no, they never use his model. He has the perfect model for buying companies, the way he does it. And yet, nobody ever learns. I, you know, he's, I think he's fantastic. You mentioned Japan earlier. Are you looking into? Do you own any of the trading companies that he's invested in? Are you looking I'm, at them? I'm I'm looking at all five of them. I think there's five of them, and I've yeah. had them all on the on the looking block um, now for about three or four months. And to give Hedgeye some credit, you've recently kind of backed down on Japan, and so Keith I thought, you know, has, I'll, yeah. I'll uh, mm -hmm. I wait. I may wait a little while on there to see what's going to go on here, but. Uh, yeah. That, that's, where, that's what we've done. Yeah. Um, I am keeping a careful eye on the clock, and I know we've got to get you to JFK in a timely manner. If you don't mind, I want to, I gave you a forewarning, but I have right. done a lot of interviews like this over the years, and I have sort of two favorite closing questions, mm -hmm. which I'd like you to answer in a total of about five minutes, and then we should wrap up sure. get you to the airport on time. Um, the first one I call my grace under pressure question, and it's simply, as I think you know, what is the greatest display of grace under pressure that you've ever witnessed in real time, either in person or on TV, but replays don't count? Right. Well, I'm going to answer it, but I will tell you I've watched so many cases of grace under pressure on just normal people that uh, illnesses or they were going broke in a business or something. They had tremendous grace under pressure. And I'm, and I just, my hat's off to them, and I, I see a lot of that. Which makes but them not normal people, right? Not normal they're people, extraordinary right. people. They're extraordinary people. Normal and by they have conventional some, Yeah, they have something yeah. about them yeah. that's able to do that. I'll answer that question, I, I have to think about it. But if, when I was, I was, I was around 12 years old, I was watching, um, I was watching, the Birmingham riots, and I don't know if anybody remembers it, but uh, you were in North Georgia. I was no, North at the time Carolina. I was in Texas. By you then, yeah, we got into yeah. Texas, but uh, yeah. but in watching that, I, I don't know if people realize, but Martin Luther King got thrown in jail, and so they were showing that. But then all of a sudden, thousands of kids left schools. Mm -hmm. And they didn't loot. They didn't. They didn't burn. Mm -hmm. They did. They just were trying to get 
you know, equal rights. Yeah, nonviolent protest. Yeah. yeah. And they were completely nonviolent. Mm -hmm. And if you watch that, you think, you know, how do you take a group of that many kids and keep their cool when they're getting blown out with hoses, beat mm -hmm. up, and everything? And I always had, uh, that always struck a place in my heart for mm -hmm. them. And that, that's just something I always noticed. Yeah, it's interesting. I think we could both agree King's letter from, a Bur from the Birmingham jail is one of the great pieces oh, yeah. of writing in human history. Yeah, he's written some interesting things. It's extraordinary. Yeah. So my other question, um, I call it my Mount Everest question, uh -huh. because as you know, I was reading into thin air when Krakauer published it about the debacle on uh -huh. Everest, I think it was in 1996, and I said to myself, uh, not the Sherpers who tragically died, but the really wealthy patrons of the Sherpers who were on the mountain and they themselves died, mm -hmm. I thought to a person they wouldn't be there if the universe had a rule that said once you get back from Everest, assuming you make to the, to the summit and return safely, you can never talk about it. In other words, it was their ego that was driving. So the, the Mount Everest question that I've posed and had a lot of interest in doing so over the years is simply what is the single feat, F-E-A-T, that you would be keenest to accomplish subject to the all-important condition that no one would ever know that you'd accomplished it. Well, and I, pardon me if I read something into this, but I assumed it didn't have to be something that was physical. No, you know? of course not. And yeah. so for me, that's an easy answer for me. If, if I could financially and emotionally affect every foster child in the United States, I'd never, I wouldn't care if anybody ever knew about it. Yeah. That would be my feat. Yeah. Let's take one more minute to talk about, it's remarkable to me and commendable what you've done with Foster Angels. Just describe for the audience, and I'm going to encourage folks, because I think it's a worthy cause to maybe support it. So let's finish Well, we that. have two Foster Angel foundations, both in Texas, one in South Texas, one in Central Texas. They're different foundations that I started, but, but we help between the two. We have about 10,000 kids a year. And I will say this to everybody out there, that foster kids have it rougher than anybody. Yeah. And I know they do. And what we decided to do was to make sure that whatever they wanted to help their self-esteem, we provide it in 48 hours. And that's what we do. And we turn a lot of lives around. Now, you know, you're, you're gonna, not going to turn everybody around, but if I can affect and we can affect a uh, life of a kid to just improve their self-esteem, yeah. that they really say, you know, somebody cares about me. Yeah. then we win. Okay, so to just th get the nail flush to the plank, people Google like fosterangels.org. Yeah, uh, yeah, just fosterangels of it's Central dot Texas. Org, right, right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah, 501c3. Yeah, 501c3. Both are 501c3s. Yeah. One right. South Texas, one Central. Awesome. They're both fabulous. We've got fabulous people yeah. in both. And by the way, we get most of the money to the kids. Yeah. You've seen that before, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, Ted, you have important work to do in Texas, among other things, Foster Angels. So thank you for making the trip. We'll let you get back down there. and. Well, really appreciate you coming by to talk to me. Glad to be here, and yeah. you know I have a lot of respect for Hedgeye. I yeah. love I love all your work. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Ted. Okay. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. 
Hedgehead is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgehead subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws as intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the Terms of Service at hedgeye.com slash Terms of Service.